0: Ladies and gentlemen, um, my name is uh, John Walters. I'd, uh, on behalf of uh, the President of Hudson, Ken Weinstein, our board, I'd like to welcome you to the Betsy Wally Stern Con- Conference Center here at Hudson Institute uh, for this important meeting. Um, my job is brief, and uh, first and foremost, not to eat into your time for more important matters on the subjects that uh, you have to cover. Uh, I want to introduce, uh, most of all, Arthur Herman, who will uh, introduce the program as a whole. Arthur is a senior fellow here at Hudson. Um, He is uh, the kind of person that uh, many people like to think they could aspire to be but aren't. Uh, He has written on everything from the intellectual foundations of Western civilization to the uh, industrial leadership that helped us win World War II, to matters of policy and security, uh, economics and uh, international cooperation on trade as well as uh, security. Um, He has written uh, more recently extensively on energy and is heading a uh, uh, major project here on looking at the energy futures of the United States and globally. And I want to thank him personally for organizing uh, uh, this, and I want to thank all of you who are participating, those of you who came to uh, participate. We think this is um, obviously important and and an area where we can really make progress in uh, policy and understanding through uh, an effort to try to find common ground and try to move forward on some of the questions and matters. So I want to express, again, my thanks uh, to all of you for coming and for participating in this, and uh, we hope to follow through and use what you allow us to borrow from your knowledge uh, in this larger effort. Without any ado, I'll introduce Arthur. Thank you, John. That
1: was great. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, As John mentioned, I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow here at Hudson Institute, and I want to welcome you to the second of the conferences that we've been organizing on the issues of energy and national security. Um, And uh, we look forward to seeing you Uh, at future conferences dealing with this very important convergence of these two areas that in many cases have been uh, uh, widely segregated, uh, particularly in this town, in terms of the discussion of the way in which America's energy future overlaps with its issues of its larger national security and and national interest. Um, And uh, I'm particularly pleased to be able to welcome you to this event uh, with the outstanding panel of experts that we've pulled together for the first time to talk about one of the issues that we're going to be uh, discussing a lot more in the future and is going to loom large in discussing America's future, and that is the question of alternate fuels. Alternate fuels, that's a phrase that dies on the lips in some parts of this town, um It's one that tends to get entangled in certain kinds of political debates and clashes between certain lobbying interests on Capitol Hill uh, and in various government agencies. Uh, it's an issue too, I should add, that in many ways um, has many too many people have assumed has faded from view uh, as an important question, faded from view in part because, of the impact of the shale revolution, which has now turned the United States into uh, the number one uh, oil producer uh, in the world. Uh, alternate fuels having been an issue that it, it, it was thought made a lot of sense when the U.S. was highly dependent on imported oil, especially imported oil from OPEC. Now that possibility seems to have receded from the horizon and therefore, what do we have to think about uh, uh, substances like ethanol and methanol and the other possibilities uh, for fuel transportation, for fuel transportation for vehicles, other than petroleum gasoline. The second factor, of course, that's driven out, that makes people think that this is a debate they don't have to worry about anymore, an issue that no longer is relevant, has been the, the, the profound drop in, in the price of oil. Again, discussion about alternate fuels, ethanol, methanol, and the other, the cast of su- usual. Uh, of usual alternatives, and so on, may have seemed to make sense when oil was at $90, $100 a barrel, uh, but with the drop in the price of oil of almost 50% over the last year, uh, what sense does it make to continue this debate when, in fact, we're now going to have cheap oil, cheap gasoline for the foreseeable future? By the way, of course, for those of you who check daily on, your, uh, on oil prices, it's back up again. Uh, we're pushing up, board, up towards about $60. Uh, a barrel again, and maybe even a little bit higher. How long that's going to be, we don't know. Uh, but that's going to be something, all too, that enters into the debate about alternate fuels. Alternate fuels and, of course, also electric cars. This is the other group who've sort of taken a hit because of the drop in oil prices. As those who, uh, as we have more Americans wondering if whether they should have passed up that uh, Nissan LEAF for a Range Rover. But think again. In fact, as we're going to learn today, that shale revolution, particularly the shale natural gas revolution, may have a lot more to do with sustaining and growing out the possibility of alternate fuels than a lot of people realize. That, in fact, the growth of a natural gas-driven economy may well become one of the key factors in the shift away from sole dependence upon petroleum gasoline for America's vehicle transportation system and a shift to a more competitive what I call a competitive common market in which petroleum gasoline is one of a number of different fuels that are available to American consumers as a means by which to power their vehicles and the means by which uh, America's next important transformation transportation revolution takes place. These are the experts that we've assembled to talk about these issues this morning and this afternoon. We hope you will stay with us to join us for lunch when we have an absolutely fascinating speaker who's going to talk about the way in which energy issues mixes with American politics, particularly approaching uh, the 2016 presidential campaign. And in order to kick things off, what person would be better to talk about the future of alternate fuels, and some people say we should drop that, we should really talk about them as future fuels instead of alternate fuels, what person better to talk about this than John Hoffmeister? Now, uh, if you've lived without a television set or you've been living on a desert island for the last five to seven years, you probably wonder who's John Hoffmeister because he has become one of this nation's most important and eloquent spokesmen on the energy industry and on America's energy future on uh, cable networks, on commercial networks, on radio shows all across the country. If you've watched the film Pump on the future trajectory of alternate fuels and the ways in which these may become not only technically but commercially feasible. If you've watched the film Pump, you will also know who John Hofmeister is and be wondering, how could it be that the former head of one of Big Oil is talking and looking at alternatives to petroleum gasoline as far as the future goes for America's transportation system? But that's the kind of uh, vision and, plus expertise and experience that John Hofmeister brings to the energy discussion in understanding not only the technical aspects, but also to the larger picture in terms of its role in American national interests and in national security. John Hofmeister, as I mentioned, was uh, president of Shell Oil Company until he retired in 2008, and now heads the uh, citizens' uh, non for profit organization that he also founded, Citizens for Affordable Energy. He's a business leader who's participated in the inner workings of multiple industries over the last 35 years. He's served as chairman of the National Urban League. Did you know that? Uh, he has also, at the same time, been chairman of the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Tentacle Advisory Committee. He's a man, as I say, who understands the technical side of the discussion of of Uh, fuels other than petroleum gasoline as well as understanding the larger picture. Many of you know John Hoffmeister personally. Many of you have have heard him speak before. We're delighted and honored to have him to introduce our conference for today. John Hoffmeister.
2: Good morning everyone. Thank you Arthur and thanks to the Hudson Foundation for sponsoring this meeting. I'm glad you mentioned Citizens for Affordable Energy. Most places I go now, when I mention Citizens for Affordable Energy, they say, why are you still doing it? You won. You won. Think of the prices that we pay now versus what we were paying when you started. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we haven't won. In fact, this recent reduction in prices is a pretty significant step backward in where we need to go. And the primary reason that I care so much about alternatives and future fuels is, as a person from the oil patch, I know the limitations. I know what's possible and what's not. And the appetite for oil worldwide will never, ever be satisfied from the oil patch. It can't be. The risks, the costs, the geopolitics, really cannot begin to address the two billion people on this earth who really don't have access to oil-based petroleum fuels. And most of them never will. There just isn't enough. Nature has not been that kind, that generous, to allow that much oil into the recoverable parts of the earth to make it possible. So I was thinking, how do I begin to tee up this subject to a group like yourselves, who already know more than certainly I know about these many different topics, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get a little head start by drawing on yesterday's Wall Street Journal special section on energy. And in the plane flying here from Houston, I thought, wow, I can just recite what the Wall Street Journal has already said, what could be more appropriate? Until I read it. It's a wonderful piece of journalistic professionalism which speaks well of the Wall Street Journal. They always do a good job. My intent is not to be critical, but my uh, actual takeaway is in its journalistic professionalism It is the story of what is. The story of what is doesn't begin to address the story of what needs to be, from my point of view, because if we continue to focus on the current situation, what we're reporting on is the world's largest technologically sophisticated but increasingly at-risk energy system that, it is in, that is in dire need of repair, of maintenance, and in many cases, replacement. Because for all of the benefits that we receive from today's energy system, and I'm speaking broadly from a power generation and delivery standpoint to a fuel's development, fuel's delivery, and fuel's consumption standpoint, what we actually have is the world's largest, second dirtiest, and oldest energy system in the world. I don't know how many people get out of bed in the morning and jump up and down for joy to have the largest, dirtiest, second dirtiest, and oldest energy system in the world. I know I don't. Not when we are surrounded in the rest of our life, with the technological advantages that address our health care, that address our information needs, that address our analytical needs, that address our aerospace, our defense needs, where we are out in front leading the world on a sustained basis. And here we rely on electrons and molecules in the world's oldest system. But when we consider the future opportunity, that's to me when the pulse begins pounding. (laughs) That's when when you can get excited if molecules and electrons excite you. That's when you can get excited by what's possible. And what's possible is not just the steady state capital infusion of 600, 700 billion dollars a year, which the industry makes on our behalf to keep the existing system running, even with band-aids and paper clips, but can actually be expanded upon at a terrific rate of return to spend upwards of a trillion dollars a year to move beyond where we are to where we could be, and I'll describe where we could be in just a moment, but to spend a trillion dollars a year instead of six or seven hundred billion dollars a year to make a, different, a difference economically. And you put that three four hundred billion dollars additional into what's new, what's different, what's cleaner, what's more efficient, what's more effective, what's safer, what secures the nation even more than it is secured today. And you truly get excited. And the economic multiplier creates jobs, right here at home creates value for investors, creates security for citizens. And why we can't seem to get unplugged from the oldest and second dirtiest system to move towards a new system is a mystery that most of us in this room have been grappling with not for a few months and probably not just for a few years, but frankly for a decade or more as we realize that the aging system simply isn't what it used to be. But that three billion to $400 billion extra per year with an economic multiplier of a traditional 3.0 or better puts a whole lot of economic impetus into an economy that struggles to stay even. And if you read this week's analysis of the 0.2% GDP growth for the first quarter of 2015, it's likely to be rated down from that when it's revised at the end of the second quarter. We may have actually experienced negative growth in the first quarter, and I don't know about you, but the people I talked to certainly said it felt like negative growth to them as they experienced the first quarter after all these years since 2008 of truly anemic recovery compared to what we have experienced heretofore. But let me come back to making the nation more secure. Energy is at the heart of it, but enough energy is the absolute critical resource. We can have energy, because many nations have energy, but they don't have enough to deliver basic security and basic economic well-being. Energy is clearly the lubricant for what makes everything else possible. And if you don't have enough, then you're paying too much. And our job is to make sure we have more than enough. Those of us from the energy producing industry always look at the market as make sure it is amply supplied. And contrary to some popular belief, oil companies don't actually like high oil prices. They like predictable, rational prices that deliver a return on investment over time. Companies do not like spiking ever higher prices because of what happens as a consequence. The cure to high oil prices is high oil prices. People stop buying. Surpluses develop and prices collapse. What's the cure to low prices? Low prices. Because people stop producing, and sure enough, we run into shortages and prices rise. This ever-continuing volatility is not good for the industry, it's not good for national security, and it is horrific for the economy. and Oil companies have been around a long time. They see beyond the advantages of volatility either way and look for those predictable price spots, they call them sweet spots actually, where you can achieve an attractive investor return on investment and you can maintain a stable workforce and you can invest in R&D and you can produce just enough energy to keep the nation well supplied. The security aspect starts to me with the power generation system, which is the oldest part of our energy system. And whether you're concerned about protection from the perhaps most dangerous EMP attack, the electromagnetic pulse attack, which you may have seen in Diamonds 11, when Las Vegas shut down so people could rob a hotel casino where the power goes out in simply every device there is. But there's quite a bit of attention being paid to EMP by agencies of the federal government, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, Department of Defense, because the very real existence of nuclear weapons from North Korea or Iran make it necessary. And an EMP attack, which shuts down much if not all of the U.S. grid, would be devastating to our national security and would result in the death of millions and millions of people who wouldn't have the advantage of secure electricity. So from that kind of a high risk to the security-driven importance of alternative transportation fuels, from rhetoric And rhetoric about the future of energy is more harmful than most people realize because it creates a false sense of security. And the worst rhetoric that I've heard in recent years is so-called all in, all the above because it's anything but all in, all the above in the reality of what the market sees. And I'm not one for confusing American citizens on what is or what isn't. And all in, all the above is fine as an aspiration, and I'll accept it as an aspiration. But as a description of a strategy or a policy, it does not exist. Just because of the simple reality of what we face today in the marketplace. But power generation is headed for serious, serious risk, in my judgment. Not that I'm not in favor of EPA higher standards on emissions, which I am, but the manner in which we are going about it, to rush to conclusion, and having talked with sufficient CEOs of utilities who are simply tired of the fight and are simply going to almost volunteer to shut down coal plants at a number necessary to achieve what they need to achieve under new regulations, resulting in a serious loss of coal plants over a relatively short period of time without a plan for the alternatives to replace those coal plants puts this nation at great risk. And particularly in the worst times of year to have a risk such as polar vortex in the winter or hot steamy summers in major parts of the nation. People die. I come from an industry where we know and understand that. People die when energy is not available. And so the rush to achieve what we're trying to achieve without a plan to substitute for what we're doing to ourselves puts us at great risk, given the age of the system, given the inability to put pipelines in place to move gas to where coal currently is used, given the inability to adjust the grid rapidly to the variances of increased renewable energy without a plan. And while bureaucracies may say, oh, we can handle the risk, they're not the ones that deliver on risk, are they? It's the utilities that operate that deliver on the risk. And when I hear them saying to me, we're not going to be able to meet the risk, I pay more attention to them than to those who assure the risk in hearings from their bureaucratic safety zone. But power generation for the 21st century could be so much different. People who work on nuclear energy, know that the current approach to nuclear energy can be displaced by a much different approach. And whether we bring back thorium, which we studied intensively in the 50s and 60s of the last century, and it reintroduced thorium as a basis for nuclear energy. Whether we move to smaller nuclear reactors in more locations... Whether we've finally come to grips with waste and put waste as a higher priority than it has been recently so that we actually take care of that waste as was committed by this nation several decades ago and restore the waste plan to what it needs to be, I still believe that the future of nuclear could be quite bright. Coal with carbon capture and sequestration. Yesterday's newspaper said pretty clearly... People are giving up on carbon capture and sequestration because of the costs. Well, we've never really explored it, have we? We have never really tested it. We have never really committed ourselves because we keep undoing our commitments. Future Gen is a thing of the past. The previous administration killed it. The new administration restarted it and now has since killed it. And so there will not be a Future Gen project based on The entirety of the Bush administration and the entirety of the Obama administration, it's done for. That's not a good test. Those who have experienced it, as I have in other parts of the world, still believe that this is a technology that we can simply pay for. Because the overall efficiency of what you achieve in the more efficient use of coal, if you're gasifying it, and in the long-term price of coal relative to other commodities, it certainly can be made to work, in my opinion. Natural gas, as we just heard from Arthur, brilliant future, looking forward as a power generation source. Solar, wind, storage, the opportunity for storage, whether it's hydrogen or other storage mechanisms, such as batteries. The opportunity for a 21st century renewed, rejuvenated power generation system sits right in front of us, particularly when we build intelligence into the grid. As we replace major parts of the grid with intelligent capabilities to handle, again, the variability of, of, of renewables. And then we get to transportation. And of course, this is why we're here. This happens to be my favorite. This happens to be where I think that the creativity of American capitalism, the ingenuity of innovators, the opportunity for new people to come into the upstream, midstream, and downstream of alternative future fuels. Couldn't be better. Obviously, I'm a proponent of the movie Pump. Delighted and grateful to the Fuel Freedom Foundation for having produced it. Great job done by so many people. Yes, a little bit of Hollywood. But when you have a Hollywood producer, you're not going to take Hollywood out of the producer. And so the effects, the music, the scenes, maybe a little stretch on a few aspects of, of the of the of the verbal uh, documentary, but also incredible truth. Absolute reality in the possibilities. Absolute confidence in the solutions that are put forward because they're being put forward by people who know. People who do this for a living. People who work it every day. People who have committed their life, their professionalism, and their earnings stream to the possibilities. And so with a combination of increased focus on domestic oil and natural gas production, which we've seen in the last five years has made a dramatic difference to not just the nation but the world, the movement to natural gas for compressed natural gas, liquefied natural gas, ethanol, methanol, gas to liquids, the electrification prospects for battery vehicles, for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, which today are actually taking place, taking their place on the highways of California, where the leadership of California is assuring the development of some 50 refueling stations for hydrogen vehicle, vehicles, and, and two vehicles, one from Hyundai, one from Toyota, actually hitting the market this year. And then the opportunity for new and different infrastructure for the downstream, the upstream, and the midstream of these alternative fuels. This enables, for example, a current distributor of gasoline in a city like Little Rock, Arkansas, where the distributor might have 100, 150 gas stations, multi-branded, to take a leadership position in methanol manufacturing by putting capital to work in methanol manufacturing from natural gas, to be the first in his region to produce M85 for sale to vehicles across that region of northwest Arkansas, to perhaps trigger a little interest by Walmart in northwest Arkansas, to think about the national possibilities of methanol across the walmart network of the nation to think about moving step by step to a more affordable cleaner alcohol fuel that works just fine in vehicles adjusted to accept that methanol fuel as we witnessed in the movie pump with the software adjustments and with the cooperation of the automotive manufacturers as they have cooperated in Brazil And in China, to make flex-fuel vehicles. The opportunity for flex-fuel vehicles in this country is every bit as powerful as in those two countries. With no rational reason why not to move forward. And now the midstream gets developed with the manufacturing and the distribution to support retailers who take the risk, or rather assume the opportunity, as I would call it, to get into the new fuels business. So what's its take to make all this happen? The new power generation system of the 21st century with its innovations and its security aspects, the opportunity to supplant oil imports coming from an ever more dangerous world, an ever more unreliable world, with other domestic alternatives, it takes a few enablers And forgive the boldness of my statement, but it takes leaders who actually lead. Leaders who are actually willing to make a difference. To stand up to those who disagree and say, yes, but, this is where we're going. Leaders that make a difference to take the unpopular view to make changes that are needed. Which include particularly regulatory permissions. The easiest job in the world is to simply say no. It takes no intellectual challenge, no intellectual activity to just say no. What's hard work is to how do you get to yes. And if we can't get to yes in the regulatory world, well, my advice is die trying because the nation needs it. We can't take no. Remember, my first point on energy, there's not enough oil. There will never be enough oil. And we will never get past the volatility of oil if we don't have competition from alternatives to oil. So we've got to get to the regulatory yes. That's not easy. That's hard work. It takes a lot of intellectual, a lot of personal, a lot of influence, particularly when you are trying to make changes against those who would rather not see changes occur. We need frank and factual information, not political agendas. The politics of energy is and has been for quite some time Energy's greatest obstacle, the politics of energy, where the haves have and the have-nots don't, if we continue along that path of the politics of energy, we'll stay where we are until the crisis comes, and I'll get to that in a moment. We need to connect frank and factual conversation, frank and factual discussion with the connection to the economic value creation and to the environmental upside opportunity that is anything but business as usual. We're not going to get to the cleaner environment. We're not going to get to the stronger, more robust economic recovery if we stay on the path that we're on. What's in the way today is obviously massive public unawareness. That's not just a problem for energy. That's a problem for many other issues the nation faces. Massive public unawareness, which I believe every one of us, by our presence here today, is willing to address. The politics of perversity. And by perversity, I'm speaking about those who use the tools of politics to not just refuse the other side, but to essentially punish the other side rather than seeking solutions. And we can each have a view in our own mind which side practices it more apparently, but I live outside the town. I see both sides practicing it all too often and all too well, which is why we stay where we are the politics of perversity and the politics of energy is an inflammatory combination. The fragmentation of governance continues to afflict us. Agency finger-pointing, congressional committee finger-pointing, adjudication finger-pointing at the federal level. Then you get to the states. Then they get to the communities, the municipalities, and the counties. It's at every level. The fragmentation of governance I've written about, and while all may not agree with my ultimate solution, which is creating the independent regulatory federal oversight of energy in a manner by which the Fed manages the monetary system, my advocacy for a similar institution to manage the energy and environmental system We could still do a lot to decrease fragmentation by simply persuading ourselves, it's all too much. As I mentioned, leaders in name only are in the way. And then I've only come to this lately. I must confess to not truly understanding during my life in the corporate world, multiple industries. But I never truly understood What stands in the way more often than not? Set aside political perversity, Set aside leaders that don't lead well. Set aside the public unawareness. There's something else that I've come to understand more fully as I've tried to work on change, not just in my own respect and through Citizens for Affordable Energy, but in cooperating with the National Energy Security Council, Cooperating with the Fuel Freedom Foundation, cooperating with any number of environmental groups, from National Defense Fund—I'm sorry, National—what is it? National Natural? Yes, thank you. Uh, Working with a number of different groups to try to come to common agreement—the power of the status quo. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. But the power of the status quo is perhaps the greatest obstacle in the way. And the power of the status quo, frankly, involves most everyone who has contributed to, who manages and maintains what we have today. It's a very large and powerful group. They don't always agree with each other, but what they do agree upon is the status quo works. And yes, the lights are on. And yes, you can go out from this meeting and fill your tank with gasoline. Maybe blended with a little ethanol. And you can go from here to Pittsburgh on that tank of gasoline. It works. It has its risks, it has its insecurities, but it works. And it will probably work tomorrow. But the question people like us are asking is, but will it work in 2020? 2025? Probably not by 2035. So what do we do about that? And what we do? Well, it's pretty generic in the first instance, but education comes to the top of the list. We have got to educate ourselves, our fellow citizens, which means we also have to engage. A movie like Pump can engage, but Pump is but a movie. But engagement is ongoing, and sometimes engagement is hard. I took some 250 Shell managers when I was at Shell in my final years to 50 cities across the country, and they were scared to death. Going into the town hall meetings in 50 different cities across the country, five managers per city who had never had a town hall other than with their own staff, in their lives. Now they're up against the general public in cities across the nation with no defense but their own knowledge and personality. But boy, did they learn quickly. And most of them wanted to do more as they got into the process. Engagement can be hard, but engagement is absolutely critical. Thirdly, persistence. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for persistence, would we? And persistence matters. Because we believe what we believe, we know what we know, we're going to do what we can do. Persistence matters. We all face the inevitability of crisis. And what crisis looks like is $5 gasoline. Or not enough gasoline. What crisis looks like are brownouts and blackouts at the worst times of year, at the worst times of day peak hours. That's crisis, when the lights go out at a peak hour. When the gasoline is too expensive and there's not enough money in the pocketbook, or the credit card's maxed out and we still need gas to get home, that's crisis. Or we can't get gas, period. Because we're not even rationing. Because the Straits of Hormuz have been closed for a month. And 25% of the world's oil is not getting to the marketplace because the proxy war in Yemen became a hot war between the principles. And there go the straits. But ultimately, the success of what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, I never thought I would say this. In recent speeches, I've been saying it regularly. What we really have to do, given all the circumstances of the disablers and the enablers, given the power of the status quo, given the unawareness of the public, given politics as they are, not as we would like them to be, what we have to do? We have to celebrate incrementalism. As a corporate leader, I never thought those words would cross my lips. Because you're paid for change. You're paid to make change. But the best I can say to the most committed, genuinely hardworking makers of the future is we're going to have to celebrate incrementalism. Because I don't know how we can otherwise overcome the power of the status quo. There's an old psychological concept called successive approximation, which many of you will have studied in the 1960s or 70s. I understand it's out of favor in today's teachings. But successive approximation in the implementation of future fuels is about as good as it's going to get, short of a near and present crisis. We would be aided and assisted by crisis, but in the near term, it's not there today, it's not there tomorrow, and frankly, the power of the status quo is going to try to make sure that we don't experience that crisis in ways that would rapidly change minds. Obvious, practical, on the part of those who protect the status quo. But successive approximation and incrementalism is, to me, what I get out of bed now for. Because a little bit of change today, that conversation with a particular person tomorrow, that speech a day after tomorrow, that opportunity to attend another event next week, that opportunity to engage a, a committee chair, a ranking member, a member of the appointed group of executives in the executive uh, branch, those opportunities to make the point, those opportunities to use frank and factual information, those opportunities to strip it of the politics and to simply look at the reality, those opportunities continue to come. We'll have to take advantage of them, but I don't see a revolution coming our way. I don't see a sudden awakening in a nation that has had multiple awakenings coming our way. I see more hard work. I see more science. I see more research. I see more persuasion down the pathway of trying to achieve what we're trying to achieve. And a meeting like this is an excellent way to come together on what it is we have to say. Thanks for listening. Want any oh, any questions? Cool. You want to take some questions? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Hey, John,
1: we'd be happy to take some questions from the audience.
2: Yes, Bud. Sir,
0: this a very, very powerful agenda.
2: Thank you so much for coming. I was really struck by the example you gave of the Little Rock entrepreneur retailer, and I am delighted to hear about it. How did they get around or cope with the certification for M85? And uh, <clears throat> how is it working? Well, it's hypothetical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I used it as a hypothetical example. My apologies if I wasn't clear on that. Uh, it, it is the, but it is the perfect f- type of an example of how it can move forward in real time, in real terms, if we get the enablers through the regulatory uh, changes that we're asking for. Because those kind of people will pick it up and go. They're not going to wait for the big oil company to say, go. Uh, the distributor I have in mind has Conoco stations, has Shell stations, has Exxon stations. I don't think you're going to hear, uh, uh, well, it's now Philip 66, I should say, you're not going to hear the, the leadership of Phillips or Shell or Exxon say, "Take it away." They're going to create it on their own, but they have the right to do that.
1: Uh, John, don't uh, most uh, retail service stations have agreement with the uh, oil
2: providers that they work with to not serve, uh, not offer alternative fuels?
1: I'm sorry. Can I ask you this? Sure. Sure. Reid with the uh, Energy Future Coalition. Don't most service station agreements with uh, the oil companies preclude the selling of off-brand uh, materials? Uh,
2: yes, uh, technically that is correct. How do we get around that? Uh, it is quite doable based on requests. Dealers have associations independent of the oil companies. And the dealer associations actually have a lot more power than the oil companies like to acknowledge. <laughs> so so they, they don't want to go to war with each other. But if there's a sufficient interest among dealers to change, amend, modify those agreements, and it is in the business and commercial interest of the dealers to do so, they can get it done. It might not be overnight. But having sat on the other side of the table from those dealers, what you don't want is dealers saying, OK, take your damn brand. And they'll go get another brand. That's where the dealers have the power. Take your brand back. I'll find somebody who will let me make more money for my family. Thank you very much. And the oil companies, I can't speak for all of them, but many of them will be more flexible under such commercial negotiations as they may be. But I, I think it's quite doable. And, and I've never... You know, it's, it's one of those... Uh, Uh, There are a lot of rules in society that when the popular will moves, the rules move as well. It's one of those dynamics as I see it. Now, if, if I were still at Shell, would I tell you what I just said? Probably. Maybe a little more diplomatically. But yes, dealers do have the ear of the companies they represent.
1: I'm going to use my uh, exert my authority as uh, introducer to ask him then the final question then we'll take a quick break and reassemble for panels and
2: that question is this John in that Wall Street Journal article do they get anything right Oh it's all I think journalistically it's very well done because it, it and it is about what is and I think it's absolutely accurate I didn't find any anything that I really took exception to uh, in anything they had to say including CCS or, or including, uh, whether d- debates on the future of pricing. I've been a price hawk throughout this whole period. Uh, Boone Pickens and I had a long conversation last fall, and we saw the dip, and then we saw we're both you know, sort of, we've been there, done that for a while, and what's actually happening, and Boone and I are almost on the same page with the $60 by May scenario, $80 by, I don't know, November, December, Time frame, because we know from experience what happens when you shut down rigs. And what nobody talks about, and I've said it on multiple television programs in the last three months, what nobody knows about the energy industry is the insidiousness of the actual natural decline rate. You know, the, the top production of a well is when it's new. And as the well ages and the oil comes out slower and less, That's an insidious process that you really can't stop unless you intervene. And so the insidiousness of the natural decline rate of existing fields is going to take 4 to 5 million barrels a day out of global production. And it does every year. And so if now your rigs are down cut by half, which they are, you're not going to make up for that 4 million barrels a day loss of production and you're not going to increase production. Even
1: with the new mature extraction technologies. Even with
2: the to... new highly high, highly productive yeah. extraction, because you only have half as many rigs operating. And so you're eventually going to run one to two million barrels a day short, which gets you to equilibrium, which gets you back to eighty, ninety dollar oil.
1: Well, John, thank you again very much and want to show our appreciation again for, uh, thank for, you. for a wonderful
2: speech.